Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, your co-host, Mackenzie Koss. Let's get into it. Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Dan Meth, most recently the senior art director at Two Fish Agency in Amsterdam. Chances are you've seen some of his amazing work with companies like Art Basel, MTV, BuzzFeed, Comedy Central, Pitchfork, and Disney, just to name a few. Welcome on, Dan. We're so excited to have you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Mackenzie. Thank you, Nick. Yeah, the legendary Dan Meth. We're so honored to have you on the I'm show. I'm honored to be here. Awesome. First off, I want to talk about, uh, recently I saw your video resume, which I think I saw it first on uh, LinkedIn. And I thought it was one of the most compelling and creative ways to showcase uh, the breadth of your work in this incredibly entertaining, but also very uh, informative way. Yeah. And it feels like I've been a fan of Dan Meth, the legend, for decades now. And I think I even learned things watching that video. I was like, wow. This is such a compelling piece. Thank you, um, Nick. Thank you. And it made me want to talk to you about the inspiration to do it, about what went into creating a piece like that, and maybe what the outcome has been since you've put it up. Thank you very much. Uh, I spent a couple months on that while I was working on other things. So I like I had a lot of time to uh, to sculpt it. I guess my intention with it was just if I was going to, Let's say I'm in an elevator. It's an elevator pitch. It's like I got <laughs> yes. three three minutes of attention. Maybe that's a lot in today's internet world. So I'm just saying, look, hi, my name's Dan. Let me show you everything I've done very quickly <laughs> and, in, a, in a way that's hopefully entertaining. And if you're not, if you don't like what you see, it's probably not going to work out with us anyway. So I'm just going to, yeah, be, I'm going to be myself. I'm going to make show you the funniest, weirdest stuff I've done, um, show you all the people I've worked with, who I've worked for. And, you know, if, if you get it, then you get me and then we can make something together. It's a, it's a remarkable piece. I encourage everyone to check it out. Yeah. I think it's called Long Story Long Short. Long Story Short. Yeah. Yes. And what I didn't know about you was that you participated in the infamous Woodstock 99, of which I've recently watched just the most depressing <laughs> documentaries about. Yeah. And I would love your context of that experience. Okay, well, <laughs> the, the the story is I went to college about an hour from where the concert was going to be. And it was the summer I graduated college, not to date myself, but that's that I was uh, 22 or something. And we heard that they were going to need a giant mural around the concert site in Rome, New York. So my friend and I, we, as soon as we, we threw off our cap and gown and then we, we, drew this enormous pitch for our mural and we drove there and we like kind of talked our way into the security past the security into the concert uh management site and um basically they they were like okay you guys got the job so we spent the entire month of july i think painting this enormous mural on plywood plywood sheets on the uh the floor of a giant former air force hangar because it was on an air force base so we spent about four or five weeks painting this thing and they they assemble it they 
you could see that in the video. They're they're nailing it to this 500 foot wall around the concert. We got to go to the concert for free. We got VIP passes. We're hanging out with uh, Jewel and uh, Dave Matthews, Counting Crows, everybody from the from the 90s is backstage. And then um, the concert is a giant disaster, as <laughs> now we all know. And at some point during the last day of the concert, all the kids destroy the entire concert and they rip apart our mural and they're using it as uh, surfboards. They're throwing it into bonfires. And uh, so we heard about this and we're, we were kind of like, we were kind of upset for about 30 seconds before we are like, isn't this kind of like the best ending for this whole summer? This is like, this is the most epic thing that could ever happen with this mural. And it's, so it's kind of like my career, <laughs> my career was like born out of fire, literally. And uh, it's kind of, it, it took me like 20 years to realize how good a story that actually is. And I, I think it's because nobody really had heard much about Woodstock 99 because there wasn't the internet really. So yeah. thankfully, yeah. thankfully this documentary came out and finally everyone knew what I was talking about all those years. They're like, whoa, that's, that's what it was like. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I've been, I've been telling you for 20 years that this is like the altamont of our generation and no one cared. And now yeah. finally they got to see with their own eyes. They're like, whoa, you were at that. Whoa. Um, yeah. So that, that was my first job. That's unbelievable. And people started selling your work as like yeah. sort of a uh, memento of this just train wreck of experience, right? Only recently, like some people kind of wrote to me and they were like, are you, did you paint this thing at Woodstock? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I, I've had it in my basement for 20 years. And I just, uh, oh my gosh, I, I just sold it. So like most of it was destroyed, but the people that held on to a piece of it somehow were able to, uh, probably after the documentary, when it got a little hype, they were like, this is an artifact of rock history. This is a surviving piece of the Woodstock 99 wall. And they were auctioning it off online. I think one oh sold my for gosh. like almost $12,000 or something. That's more, than I, it's more than I got paid the whole summer. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, inflation, you know? Yeah, yeah. Inflation. I mean, that, that's how art works. That's how fine art works. Right. Always. So it kind of feels, I mean, I, I'm not really like a fine art gallery guy. But that was uh, that's a pretty cool uh, story. You went to college for commercial illustration and wanted to be a cartoonist, right? All my life, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And I was doing that when I was like four years old. I went to study illustration. So illustration, for those who uh, don't know, it's kind of like the, the side of art for people who want to make sure they have a job. <laughs> as opposed to fine art, which is like galleries, commission paintings and oil paintings and stuff. Illustration is like what you see in books and magazines. But, you know, 1999 was a time when there was still sort of a illustration market with the uh, with the rise of the Internet. You know, publishing has really taken a huge hit. There's not like magazines. There's not record covers. There's not all a lot of the opportunities for illustrators don't really exist anymore. Can you talk about the evolution of that journey and maybe how you stayed creatively inspired? So after Woodstock, I moved out to San Francisco, to the Bay Area. I still wasn't very computer literate at this time. So I was like, I was doing weird projects. Like I was doing newspaper advertisements for record stores. I got a job painting enormous uh, murals for like 
the NFL owners banquet or something. It was, it was really, <laughs> Oh my just, gosh. I mean like, and this is 1999. This is when like the, the first t- uh, web tech bubble is really getting huge. And like all these people moved to the Bay area to, to get into internet. So I taught myself, I, I, I realized, okay, everything's happening online, not, not in newspapers right now. So I taught myself uh, animation, web animation, and I made some kind of like interactive cartoon maps. I don't know. There wasn't a lot to look at on the internet at that point. So I, I taught myself animation and I self-published a bunch of cartoons. And that's when I first really discovered like the virality, like people passing stuff around on the internet. And then everyone lost their job. <laughs> About 2001, the... Uh, <laughs> The tech bubble exploded and um, all these startups that didn't have like a, a clear business plan, they all went under in the matter of months. So I moved back to New York where all my friends were now uh, hanging out. And I was like, I'll try the same thing here in New York. And I, I did. So I, I realized like a way for me to get work was to make something very viral and put it online. And it worked again. I made like a interactive cartoon map of New York, got sent around, people passed it around. Suddenly, suddenly this is before comment sections. So back then, <laughs> if if somebody if somebody saw something online and they had something to say, they would just email you. So I was getting all these all these interesting emails and also job offers of people saying, Hey, can you do a cartoon for us? Can you do a can you do a something viral for us? And that's what I did for like the next five years. Okay. So People spend their whole careers or people spend so much of their energy trying to crack the code of what makes something viral. And it feels like you were sort of so finger on the pulse of what's going to connect to people or what's going to connect. How do you think about what will go viral when you approach a a creative project or even a piece of art that you want to put online? I think of a Venn diagram, if you could visualize it, it's like one circle is your interests and the other circle is other people's interests and where they overlap. I think that's the sweet spot of virality. Like you cannot fake your interest in something and you also can't expect everyone else to care about something that is very niche and only your own interests. Like for example, I've never read or seen any Harry Potter movie, not one. I just not in, I'm, <laughs> What? I'm, I know, it's crazy. I'm They're a, pretty I'm good, a, man. I, yeah. I'm sure they are. I mean, there's still time for me to to get in there, but I use that as an example because I cannot fake a Harry Potter cartoon. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't know anything about it and I'm not interested in it. And people are going to smell that somehow. They're going to sense that. But if I make a cartoon about, say, Led Zeppelin or um, Star Wars, which I do love, I'm speaking to my, there's like a fan base already out there. If I make a cartoon about New York City and I live in New York City, everyone's going to love it because they, it's like, oh, he's talking about us. He's talking about things I know about. Yeah, it's almost and like I, you're not think, reaching. You're just going, this is inside yeah. of me. This is something that I right. care about. Um, but yes. how do you have insight into what other, what you think others are going to care about? Or is it just that um, an awareness of a fan base or an, an awareness of a cultural significance? Yeah, I mean, it goes beyond fan base. It, it You know, like I'll say Nick and I have, we go way back. He's he's one of the funniest comedian performers, comedy improv guys I've ever seen. <laughs> wow! So yeah, Nick. That's high praise. So <laughs> Nick, 
Nick knows as well as anybody, you got to be funny. If you're trying to be funny, you got to be funny. So like, <laughs> yeah, you can't, you, can, you can't, you can't really fake comedy. You just, and you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not like a stage performer like Nick, but I, I try to think, is this funny to me? I know what's funny, but are they going to find it funny? And I, you know, it's like, try harder, make it funnier. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To use a so, uh, Harry Potter yeah. reference, uh, there are <laughs> wizards and there are muggles. And some people are wizards <laughs> at being funny. And some people just, you know, they don't have the they magic. They got it. Yeah. That's I mean, amazing. I would know if I, if I read Harry Potter. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I guess I do. I do have an, a knack for making things that are funny. And I realized that early on people only because people told me, Hey, that was a funny cartoon. Hey, that was funny. So I go, okay, I guess I know what I'm doing here. You follow the yeses. And you started creating video content way before YouTube. And I feel like we sort of have that in our past where we both mm -hmm. were putting out videos before, you know, things like web, web series. I remember the first time I made a web series, I could see the like internal chuckles by people being like, that's what you're putting your creative efforts into. <laughs> you know, like it just didn't feel like uh, it held any weight or it, it, or people were like, oh, you're, you're doing a funny little quirky project. I, I think web series paved the way for influencers and for people to make iterations on types of content and constantly provide a stream of expectations to their audience that like, keeps them well-fed with content. I don't know. Like to me, it's it's yeah. like evolved. Yeah. But I wanna talk about your experience because I do feel like yeah. you've had this remarkable career of putting out viral videos from the time before YouTube to like you've put out countless viral videos in the era of YouTube uh, for major companies. Um, and I just wanna hear about your perspective on the evolution of video and your role in it. Sure. Yeah. So uh, picking up where I was before. So I'm I'm now in New York and I'm like, it's it's sort of like one cartoon gets me the next client and then I do something for them. Then the next client comes, sees that and so on. It's like I'm following a path, right? Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I'm doing cart, I'm doing cartoons for, for clients that like, they're not expecting these things to actually go viral because nobody re like there was a kosher food distributor. Like they, they had a very small, it's a very small world of like kosher food distribution. But I, I was like, I'm going to make this as, I'm going to make this as funny as I can. I got my friend and we made this whole song about kosher foods and uh, it went viral. And then I, I don't know if that was the one, but at some point this guy, Fred Seibert, who was the, he was the co-founder of MTV. He was once the president of Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Network. He was like a very uh, influential Nickelodeon Cartoon Network producer guy. Yeah. With no big deal. A big time yeah. mogul. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> he was the guy that, he was the guy, you know, I was like the type of guy I wanted to be talking to, not kosher food distributors. So he saw, but he saw one of those cartoons and so he, he called me in and we, we had a, a bunch of nice meetings and he was like, pitch me, pitch me something, pitch me little cartoons. And maybe I have like these anthology shows on Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network. Well, so we kept, we kept talking for like almost six months and ended up like 
working uh, for this studio. And, but I was still, I still had to pitch. And this is where you asked me on the prep call. You're like, have you ever been stumped? What's like a project that stumped you? And I think like, it's a very hard thing to pitch a TV show to say, this is the character that can carry a whole show. These are the characters. So what I said to Fred was, I'm like, all right, look, I'm not, I'm not having much luck pitching a show to you, but can I do an anthology show? Like, can I just do like 39 short cartoons that are not related? And he was like, yeah, that's actually even better <laughs> because that way, if one of them takes, if one of them takes off, then yeah, now we, we're spreading the chances of having a, a, a spinoff by like 39 times. It's much better than just tr committing to one. So I was like, yeah, great. So then I made my web series, the meth minute 39. That's how that started. I was like, I was, I was stumped on pitching a show. So I pitched 39 <laughs> different shows. <laughs> and those, for Which those really, of you who, yeah. who don't, uh, who, who a video doesn't come to mind, the meth minute, uh, spawned so many viral hits, uh, internet people was part of the meth minute. Uh, the, what was the, just name some of the, the titles that oh, come there out. was, uh, yeah. The music nerds, space cowboy, watermelon, Nights. watermelon, <laughs> watermelon nights. Oh, <laughs> uh, and then there was just, yeah, there was all these characters. Like I managed to create like almost like a, a mini world of different characters that would kind of cross into each other's cartoons. And it, it was actually the best experience because he said, just do whatever, like, you know, full creative freedom there. Wow. With a bunch of interns, I had my best friend working in a sound studio so we could record. And he was making, uh, Mark Vitelli was making great uh, sound mixes. And we would add, we had a stock music library. This is like what kind of holds animators back from doing their own shows is you do need more than just yourself and a computer. You, you need other voices. You need to have friends who are Upright Citizens Brigade comedians like Nick Ross and Nick's friends. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you get your friends that are funny in front of a microphone and tell them, okay, now you're playing, you're playing, uh, you know, this dog that, that is running around on an airplane. You know, you, you feed them the uh, scenario and uh, watch comedy happen and harness it and then edit it and then put it in front of a giant audience on YouTube. What are and some metrics? What, what are some of the metrics of the performance that uh, mm. Meth Minute earned? It premiered in 2007. That's only two years after YouTube exists, like began. I, I think Internet People, the very first episode, got like a million views in three days or something. At that time, a million views, if you adjust for like YouTube inflation, that's like <laughs> that's like a hundred a hundred million views. <laughs> um, it was wild. So. You know, there was like an instant connection with viewers. A lot of the viewers were, you know, 17, 18 years old at the time. And now I get letters from, I still get emails from people, but now they're in their like 30s and they're telling me they grew up with the my cartoons, which is weird <laughs> to hear. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. That's uh, yeah. So where did it go from there? Because th then you got connected to the the more mainstream corporate media channels and you started making a lot of content for uh, big companies that everyone's heard of. The first thing that came out of the Meth Minute was a spinoff of one of the episodes called Night Fight, which is a kind of like a spoof on 
I mean, this is, this is, you have to take yourself back a bit to like a, a kinder, gentler time where, bef- where like a debate news show wasn't so scary. Right. So it was like, <laughs> it was like a, sp- it was like a spoof on like Hannity and Combs and nobody remembers Combs, but Hannity used to have a guy that he would debate with. So it was like a spoof on that, but it was like, what if there was like a news debate show about the dumbest topics possible? But anyway, so this was, a, this was our spinoff show and we had arranged something with an ad agency called Digitas, where it was like, they were like, we're going to make product placement in this show. We're, we're going to sponsor it. It's going to be sponsored by Mars Candy, Starburst specifically. Yes. <laughs> so this is my first, you know, this is my first big ad agency uh, collaboration. And it was, it was really funny because we weren't, you know, we weren't thrilled to have to be doing little spot advertisements for Starburst candy, but we, they allowed us to write them in such a way that all the, all the viewers of the show were like, wait, is this really sponsored by Starburst? I can't tell if this is like a gag. (laughs) Which is the beginning of kind of sponsored content. It feels like, or. Or maybe yeah. it wasn't part of our uh, collective understanding of how the internet works. Like now I feel like you see sponsored content exactly. 20 All times over, a day. Yeah. Yeah. Since YouTube was only been around, had only been around for two years, I think this is like the first time brands were really taking notice of YouTube. Like we got to get on there, but we can't just put ads on there. We got to get ourselves into fun videos that people like. So, you know, it was actually kind of funny in the end. And I was happy with the way it came out because it didn't feel like advertising or it made advertising fun and made me realize, yeah, maybe Madison Avenue has like a pretty good sense of humor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like that's <laughs> what a wonderful discovery of like opening up a whole new realm of possibilities when you realize that so much of the, uh, you know, like the, the world of earning money for creativity is in advertising. Um, yeah. And maybe that's like yeah. a, an entry in. Cause I, I mean, I remember that with creativity once I started realizing that, you know, you have to find that marriage of art and commerce. And sometimes it feels like it can be soul sucking, but it can also be enriching if you put your energy into projects that you can actually get behind. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so great when a client trusts you and, 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 and lets you do it the way you would want to watch it. You know, like, let me make a commercial that I would be happy to, to, to share with somebody that I'm not going to be embarrassed about having made, but let me make a commercial that I think is funny, basically. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it feels like you, you approached it in such a organic way of building work that you, building work without that, those attachments that people can then use to trust you and people can then be like, okay, cool. So he's built this great reputation based on all this creative work where he had creative freedom. So we can use that work as validation that you're going to create something that, you know, has that possibility to go viral or possibility to, uh, make a lot of people laugh. Uh, I want to jump forward in time a bit. Um, because, in your career, you worked with, you know, countless names. I, Mackenzie mentioned them up top, um, but in your recent role, you took an in-house job at a very cool creative agency in uh, the Netherlands. Um, and I want to talk about how that transition 
happened and, and what your reflections are on the work that you were doing for that agency? Yeah. So after like eight years in New York of, you know, post post meth minute, post night fight, I worked for College Humor for a few years doing all shorts for them. I worked for BuzzFeed full time as like a writer artist. And th this is I mean, that felt like in, in retrospect, that was like the high years of the Internet. It was like the, you know, I don't know. It's before the darkness crept in. <laughs> Things have certainly changed, I guess, in terms of even where the how the money flows online. There was original content online, like we made we made all kinds of videos that were uh, not advertisements, just just uh, content. Uh, I hate that word, but I don't know what else to call it. I mean, they, people were funding like just comedy videos, um, and I I moved in 2015 to the Netherlands. It seemed like a good time, actually, in retrospect, like things they, that that whole Internet world sort of sort of died around then. And, you know, the po politics changed the Internet forever, probably. Um, so after. Yeah. So I was living in Amsterdam, uh, near Amsterdam in a town called Leiden. And I ended up meeting this really great agency called Two Fish. They did all kinds of campaigns for big banks supermarket conglomerates and and Philips Electronics, which is huge in Europe. So it was like a very different world for me to go into. But the cool thing was they were like, they looked at my my website and they were like, this guy has a totally different energy. He's like a New York comedy guy. Actually, we need something like that because I don't know, like it's it's just bringing a different kind of energy to European advertising. So they saw my cartoons and they were like, if we could pitch this kind of stuff to these, to these giant companies, that would be very interesting. I, I love that. And how did yeah. it go? How, how was your experience? It was great. Um, I really liked working with these guys. The bigger the company, the harder it becomes to convince them to take like a wild risk uh, on some, on some humor that, you know, I mean, you're, they're representing you know, huge amounts of money, uh, like banks and insurance companies and pension companies. And like, these are not like where comedy goes necessarily <laughs> to the, to, in this world of like <laughs> European, uh, pension accounts, but there was a lot of opportunity on the internal side, which, um, is like a different kind of audience. Like there's lower stakes in a way, like making videos for employees of banks to see, um, so sometimes there, sometimes we would do web campaigns, uh, but sometimes we were just doing internal stuff up among for the thousands of employees of these companies. Yeah. Which is a strange, I, I mean, I, I don't think yeah. many people talk about that field as much because it's not as, it's not as like glamorous, like are the most people possible seeing this content. Right. But right. it's. It's it's another venue. It's just another venue. And sometimes you can you can be a little more daring in that venue. Yeah. Sometimes. Um, but there was one campaign like for ING Bank. We did uh we we thought it was just it started out, I believe, as just the Dutch or even just European um tagline and and new aesthetic. And I helped develop that. It's called Do Your Thing and uh, it was so successful 
the international the international office decided to make this the global campaign so that we rebranded the whole world of ing bank um, wow and, and if you go to the airport in amsterdam you'll see uh, all of our billboards even the air tunnels like to the planes are branded with this and so it's kind of funny every time i'd fly in and out i'd look out the window and i'd see a tagline that i might have written one day at the office um on <laughs> on one of those <clears throat> sky tunnels that's awesome and, yeah, it was cool. It's it's a you got to go into that kind of thing with a different attitude. You're not going to be able to do college humor type cartoons when you're working with a giant Dutch bank, you know. Right. But but you know, <laughs> Philip like Phillips, like I was the kind of the guy at the agency they would say, "But uh, you know, let's let's try to throw a curveball in our pitch. Like let's let's show them things that they're not expecting." Um, right. and see if they go for it because why not? So That's awesome. Yeah, we do a lot of we do a lot of pitching for like a, like t television branding or or electronics branding like headphones and stuff, stereos. Um and sometimes you get those ideas through and sometimes you don't. And that's part of advertising as well. Like a lot of stuff just ends up in the in the trash bin. Right. It's a, it's like 50/50 sometimes. Yeah. Kind of going back because you've been I mean, I'm going to say it, such a big influence on many different brands, things going viral. Are there any brands that you actually admire yourself from a creative standpoint and you think that's doing a really good job with illustrations and videos today? Sure. I, I mean, it's very easy because a lot of my friends who we dabble in advertising, but we really just want to be making really weird films. We all, <laughs> I think we've all noticed yeah. like Skittles and, and Old Spice Yes, uh, are just the the crazy. I mean, they they make no sense. They don't. They're they're barely. Uh, they're just so. They're like art films that are commercials. That and of course they work because everybody would rather be watching that than something sincere about deodorant. Yeah, it feels like <laughs> it feels like Old right. Spice has created a whole new genre of absurdity in advertisements. Yeah. I feel like ever since they sure. had that original. You know, like I'm just a guy on a horse. On you know, like that <laughs> advertisement yeah. feels like. Oh, now there's a whole new branch of the advertising tree that's like, let's do it like that. Uh, yes, which is cool. And the skit. I mean, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't have even thought of those two brands, but Skittles is bonkers. They do like, yeah, so rainbows. weird. They'll eat them and yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> rainbows coming They'll out like of unicorns. Share them and, and yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, With I, the I Skittles think pox. Yeah. This is what happens when uh, <laughs> when the generations turn over and leave leave the controls to the younger generation. Like, I don't think anyone below the age of uh, sixty five needs like a commercial to be to be uh, like very sincere and very very right. earnest about the product. Like, I mean, there's certain products you don't want them to be making a joke, but like certainly candy is not one of them. Like, yeah. what? Yeah. Well, you're My, over sixty five. You know your deodorant <laughs> brand. You're sticking with that brand. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't like, yeah, like Werther's Originals. Like, there's like products that oh, are really. Oh yeah. I mean, what's that gonna like a Werther's campaign in like the next five years? That, like now that now like uh, Generation X is is gonna be uh, grand grandparents pretty soon. So how you That's know? That's true. We don't need to yeah. act like we're all uh, World War II veterans at this point. We can act like we can get weird like we are. Yeah. 
Can we talk so about true. generations and how you've experienced? Because I feel like now you're you're more of a senior creative in the in the world of creativity, and you, yeah. you've made this yeah. beautiful sort of recap of your work in you know in hopes of landing a creative director role at a cool company. Um, how do you see newer generations of animators, or how do you reflect on what's happening in your field? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I guess like, I think the uh, animation is getting better and better in a lot of ways. I like when I, I, I love going to film festivals and animation festivals and seeing what people that are, you know, some, some of these people are 19 years old and they're making amazing work uh, due to technology and do and do also to uh, just kind of the loosening of the creative uh, ideals um and you know the internet keeps changing i think like i don't know where social media is going it, it in some ways it seems like it's kind of done in a way like where the <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. The, you know like aren't we all collectively getting tired of looking at our phone uh more than we have to maybe yeah maybe. i'm not sure i mean i think influencers kind of took the place of all this original content but in a in a low budget crummy kind of way so that's bad but <laughs> i do think <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i don't i don't i don't see like i i think it kind of ruined what we do in a way because why would they spend you know why would anyone spend twenty thousand dollars to make a comedy video when you know the the biggest audience is just some some kid with cool hair i don't know yeah but but I, I do have hope because I, I love, I think like they have good taste. The artists, the new generation of artists have very good taste and uh, their humor is even stranger than our generations. Um, it's just like gens, like if you watch Adult Swim or, you know, as, as cutting edge as the most corporate uh, networks are, you'll see some stuff that is just really impressive and just esoteric as <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i like rick and morty i'm just gonna put that out there i've i've enjoyed that as a yeah. humor thing yeah <laughs> i mean but that, they, yeah it's it's weird because a lot of the stuff you associate with the younger generation is still made by people you know even older than us yeah in our generation yeah so, right mm -hmm. I th so you know it's it, i it's not so easy to just chop things up into generations but it is it, it it has been interesting especially lately like you know getting uh having people reach out to me and being like you i saw your stuff growing up and it had an effect on me i'm like that's 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 weird that's interesting um i guess that you know we all leave an impression on the people that that are influenced by it yeah there was something that you called yourself in our prep call that I want to bring up because I thought it was just so good. You call yourself a creative black knocker. <laughs> and which I think yes. is just amazing. And how do you feel like you consistently knock down creative barriers and really embrace that to draw your inspiration from when you're working on projects either for yourself or for companies? Yeah, so this is a new a new concept I'm developing where 
you know, in a lot of ways, a art director is somebody who looks at uh, something that somebody else made and give with their experience, they can, you know, they can see what could be improved, or changed. Uh, that background's not really working, but right. you know, you have somebody with less experience who made it. So you can be like, why don't you uh, make the background desaturated with a blue overlay? multiply layer by about 5% and then it should be good. You know, like you can, you have visual shorthand fixes, right? But what I, I've had this concept recently, it's like, it's kind of like an, a consultant where like, there's a lot of people out there who are creatively blocked in some way. And I would love to help. I would love to, cause sometimes I can see their problem that they're having before they do where, um, you know, I would, I would, I could give suggestions that exercises to make them, oh yeah, like, why am I writing in first person? It could be third person. Like I should make a character. Yeah. What kind of character? What kind of, like, just keep feeding them the questions until their, their creative block is long in the, in the background. It's, they've left it behind. They, they're on a new road. Um, and how do I do that for myself? I mean, well, I think if you're ever blocked, you need to take a walk and then come back. I think. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Step that, away. Start with that. Yeah. Just like yeah. get some, get, get your body moving. Cause I, I don't know about you, but sometimes sitting at a computer screen, it's like, it's, it's just a slope downward. Until, yes. You know, like you're like, until you're just like, I'm not, I'm looking at Twitter. How did I end up looking at Twitter? <laughs> I was editing a video. <laughs> like what's if Twitter? You, if you just take, I use X. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> just, X. uh, just, yeah, like take a break sometimes and then come back at it from a different angle, you know? Yeah. I um, love that. So, so I, I would like to be a block knocker. If anybody out there is creatively blocked, <laughs> get in touch. Be your guy. I can help you. Coming full circle, at the end of your resume video, the long story short, mm -hmm. it says, I'd love to be a creative director. Can you talk about what type of creative director you want to be and where you could sort of seeing yourself do the most meaningful yeah. work. If you watch my video and you go, this guy is too silly for me. Like this is just, uh, this isn't serious. It's not, you know, you're not, we're not meant to work together. Like I, I would love to work on projects or for agencies where they understood that like, let's face it, humor is the ultimate quality to make people want to watch something like, yes. It's a it just works. Yeah. yeah. You can try to be serious, but nobody really wants that. Sometimes it's necessary, but <laughs> no, <laughs> like, let's face it. Like people want to be entertained. Advertising should be entertainment. Yeah. Should be. So I would love to be creative director on things that need to be fun. Cause I think I understand fun. Cause I don't take anything serious. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, um, projects, clients, agencies that it's fun or nothing. Uh, humor is is what's valuable in this in this in this slot that I'm trying to fit into. Yeah, um, I love that. It's beautiful. Uh, our next segment, we talk, we ask these questions to everyone who's been on the podcast so far. So this is more about you. Uh, even though we've learned so much about you, Dan, I love this. Uh, yes. <laughs> the first question is, 
What have you done recently for the very first time? Oh, oh, well, my new obsession right now, I, I now live in the suburbs and there's not a lot going on. So <laughs> <laughs> I've really found uh, I'm into lap swimming. I go to a gym or a pool and I swim for an hour back and forth. And I think one, I've never, I've never felt better. Um, and two, it's like the only time I can not be looking at my phone or a computer screen. Like wow. you can't even listen to you can't even listen to yeah. a like when 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 are you actually disconnected? Never. But mm. in a pool, you have to be. You cannot <laughs> listen to a podcast while you're swimming laps. So I I I can't shut up about swimming. I'm like an evangelist about lap swimming. If anyone's feeling like they are not in good shape, just swim back and forth for an hour as as often as you can. You're going to feel pretty good. Oh, I love that. I, I actually want to go do yeah. that now. There's a there's a pool yeah. at the rec center right at the end of my block, and I've 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 been like yeah. teetering on the edge of membership, and I think I just uh, I got to do you it. You sold them. Um, get, get goggles and get a swim cap and and just start going. It's great. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Our next question is: If you were invited to a show and tell right now, what do you think you would bring and why? Well, I'm looking right to my right. There is a. Uh, a print that my lovely wife got for me. It's a, it's a Jack Kirby original. Jack Kirby is the creator of every Marvel superhero you probably yes. know. He's a legend <laughs> of, of cartoons and comics and illustrations. And this is a bizarre drawing he did in the seventies of it's, um, it's actually a old Testament image, but it looks like a science fiction comic. It's amazing. I'll, I'll send you a photo of it. Uh, I'm really proud of that, uh, <laughs> that I have that. <laughs> so I, and I think it, I think it informs, it inspires me a lot. I, I try to put up just art that I like around my studio here. Um, <laughs> uh, I also made a graphic novel that was never published and I'm still trying to get it published, but I would, prob I would probably bring that it it's in my video. It was optioned to be a TV show. Uh, and I wrote a screenplay, but they had to pass on it. So it's probably never going to be a TV show, but I still would love to publish it as a book. Any publishers out there, get in touch. Yeah. So I remember when you were, graphic novel. I was living in LA when it. you were pitching that and coming out to LA. That was a, right. that was a good time. I think I stayed at your house that time. That that was <laughs> that may, may have made all the difference the next morning. Yeah, I, sorry uh, about that. Sorry that pitch didn't go uh, well, but we had a fun no, it night. did. <laughs> Oh, nice. I, I, yeah. So, uh, I, I, I sold the idea and then I had, I wrote the, the pilot episode and I think that it was for FX network and like Disney then acquired FX and you know when, what happens when that happens and everybody gets let go or something and everything changes. So yeah, just bad timing. The execs that liked it all of a sudden don't work there anymore. Who knows? Yeah. Hollywood, <laughs> right? Right. Hollywood. <laughs> It's harder than uh, than advertising, I'd say. Way yeah. harder. Um, yeah. And the final question is, if you were to meet yourself at a younger age, uh, what piece of advice do you think you would give? Mm. Buy an apartment in Brooklyn now. <laughs> do it now. Nice. 2004. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I would say... 
uh, in all seriousness, related to career wise, I'd say like, uh, yeah, I mean, meet everybody, like go set up meetings, meet everybody and, and stay in touch with everybody. Um, because really the, I mean, this world is about like people liking you and wanting to work with you and they, they got to know you first. So like, I, I think there's like a sort of a, especially maybe our generation, it's like the people that are out there, you know, giving their business card out all the time. There's sort of like this, eh, that guy's like a striver, <laughs> but like, what else are you going to be later? Like you have to yeah. do that. It's really important. And it's not, there's nothing bad about it. Like be yourself and, uh, you know, show, show that you're interested in providing a service and not just being like an artiste, but like, I want to work with you on something. What are you, what are you working on? What do you need? Um, right. I, I want to help. I want to work together, you know? Yeah. Do that. Do, do all that. I love stuff. it. Yeah. A just like, collaborator. I love yeah. collaboration. I love it. Um, this is awesome. Well, Dan, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I would love yes, to direct thank people you so much. to see some of your work or to, to reconnect with some of your work that they might have seen uh, in their past. Is there a website or are there socials that we can send them to? Sure. Uh, my social is Dan Meff, really easy. That's Instagram, Twitter, though I'm not on there much, as I said. And Substack, I, I'm starting a newsletter. Um, I have a YouTube, but it's a little messed up. But go to my website, danmeff.com. And you'll see the best of everything I've done. Well, thanks again for taking the time. It 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 really is a pleasure to connect in this way. Same yes, here. Thank you so much, Dan. You're listening to a Brand Folder podcast, where we like to say, strong brands live here. Join us as we build the Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love. We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been the Brand Collective.